You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. All right. If you got your copy of God's Word, uh, go to Genesis chapter 22. And while you're turning there, I want to share with you about uh, one of my heroes. Um, long been dead, never met him. One day I will. Um, John Broadus, whenever you think about Baptist life, you have, to, you have to go probably one of the first guys you'd turn to is a guy by the name of John Broadus. How many of y'all have, have heard of Broadus? I'm, Nathan, I know you have. A couple of y'all, you've heard of him? Um, Barry, for certain, had better heard of him because he started Southern Seminary. Um, Broadus probably was in the top 1% uh, of the minds of his day, wouldn't you say? I would imagine he was easily in the top 1%. He was brilliant. He went off to school, grew up very hard in Virginia, and uh, went off to school, studied French, German, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, five languages uh, that he was proficient in. And uh, loved the Lord, uh, cared for the things of the church. And uh, at the time where he had graduated, Baptists desperately needed a school. Uh, They needed a school to train preachers. Baptists had no place to train their pastors. And so here was Broadus, young in life, uh, decided that he would be the guy that would do it. And he framed Literally, the whole curriculum, he framed the whole course of study for a seminary, uh, was the only faculty member, uh, loaded up his family, moved to Greenville, South Carolina, because they started the seminary at uh, Furman University, which is my alma mater. It's where I went to uh, school, where I went to college. And uh, he started it there by himself. He laid the foundation. He wrote the original documents, all of that to start uh, a a seminary. Um, But he had one issue after another. As soon as he moved to Greenville, South Carolina to do this work, his wife, who was 26 years of age, died. And then not long after that, his little girl, Maria, she died. And devastated, having lost a wife and having lost a a little girl, a daughter, uh, he continued to push on with the school of putting it together. He had no support. He had no financial aid. There was no convention money for him like there is today. Uh, Nobody out there funding all of this that he was doing and putting together. Uh, So everything that he did, he was doing just along and along, just almost miraculously. And then if that, all of that's not enough, the Civil War breaks out. Three years, he starts this in 1858. 1861, Civil War breaks out. He's in South Carolina. What's the first state to secede from the nation? South Carolina. <laughs> so he has to shut the school down. All of the students that were there, were they were either drafted or they went into the Confederate Army and brought us, packed everything up, and brought us, went in to become a Confederate chaplain. Uh, he preached. In fact, there's a great book called Christ in the Camp. 
you might be interested in that. You can read about the revivals that took place among the Confederate uh, soldiers um, and brought us. I was reading, a, I just got thinking about brought us today and and I went and I pulled that book off the shelf and I started reading. There was, right before the Battle of Gettysburg, Broadus was preaching to 5,000 Confederate troops right prior to the Battle of Gettysburg. And they talked about the revival, how it swept through. Even after Gettysburg, he, they said all the way up to Appomattox. And Broadus would preach like that sometimes four and five times a day to these massive groups of soldiers whom he would then go down in the lake and baptize when they came to Christ. And then they would go back up, put their uniform on, on go off to battle, and would it, it was just wholesale slaughter. Well, the war ends, and when the war ends, he comes back to Greenville, South Carolina, back to Furman University. He reopens the seminary, and he begins to put it all back together. And it begins to get up off of its feet. He's able to hire several other faculty members. Uh, and it is now becoming a, a full-fledged seminary. Then the University of Chicago approaches him and wants him. Now listen to this. The University of Chicago comes to hire him as president. The University of Richmond comes and they offer him the presidency of the University of Richmond. Georgetown University comes to Broadus and they offer him the presidency at Georgetown. And he turns all three of those and others down so that he can stay there. In fact, he pulls the four faculty members together and he looks at him and he says, this school may die, but I will die first. He gave himself to the, to the institution, uh, uh, Southern Seminary. He gave himself to it to the point to where it broke his health. He went through one test after another, after another, after another, until it literally left him incapacitated, and he dies pretty much a broken man, having given himself, having lived through all of these things that he had to go through, all of this brokenness that he had to go through. And when you look at that, and you look at his life, you begin to ask yourself the question, why? 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 Why is it that in the Christian life we have to struggle? like this. When uh, everybody was drafted, when the war broke out, and when he came back after the war, he comes back after the war, and he has one single student, one student, and he's blind. And every single day, Broadus prepares his lessons, and these are the lessons. This is a classic if you are a preacher and you have never read on the preparation and delivery of sermons by John Broadus, you're a fraud. <laughs> this is the classic right here. This was, this was his lectures to one single lone blind student who said God had called him to preach. And the man did such excellent work in preparing to go teach one student that this, all these years after his life, is a classic. Isn't that amazing for a man to give himself like that? And you wonder, why in the world does he experience all the tests that he goes through? Well, listen, in the walk of faith, God always tests his people, regardless of who you are. Genesis chapter 22. 
You come to Abraham who is going to face the greatest test in all of his life. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting. He has been tested now. He's about 120 years of age. As best I can figure, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is about 120 years of age. He's been following God now for about 45 years, and you would think to yourself, okay, well, the testing is all done in his life. No, it gets far more intense than it's ever been. And so God is going to test him because God always tests uh, those who walk by faith. He tests his people. This is one of the most moving passages in all the word of God to me. I'm going to try to make it through it without just breaking down. This is one of the most um, illuminating passages. What you've got here is you have got an entire picture of the gospel right here in uh, Genesis chapter 22. Uh, with Abraham in this test. His testing days are not over. God's going to test him. So begin with me in verse one. Look at this. It came about after these things. What things? All the testing that he's already been through. At 75 years of age, God calls him to come out of the earth of the Chaldees. That's a test. Leave your family, leave your home, leave where you've put down roots for 75 years. At 75 years of age, listen, you're not going to move anywhere. You're not wanting to move anywhere. And uh, God calls him. That was a test. He goes. He gets into the land of Canaan. There's a famine that comes out. That's a test. He gets down into Egypt. That's a test. He comes back to the land, and there is this confrontation between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot, and that's a test when Lot goes off with the best of the property. Uh, he's going to have another test with Abimelech and Sarah where... Um, where he is going to lie again the second time. You know, all of this, all of this testing, and then all of this testing for 25 years, he's been waiting for a son, waiting for a son, waiting for a son. He's got this whole issue with Hagar. And then Sarah, last week we saw, Sarah goes to him and says, you got to get rid of that woman because her boy is not going to inherit what my boy is going to inherit. And God, and God takes Sarah's side. Oh, don't you dislike that when that happens, when God takes your wife's side. Well, you know, so he says, hey, listen to your wife, because he can't. He cannot inherit with the son, inherit with the son of, uh, of the promise. And so that's another test. He has to send the boy away. He loves him. That's his son. Uh, Hagar, I'm sure he's got some feelings for her. He has to send her away. And so now all of these years he's gone through this all these testing, and now he comes down to this huge test right here. So it's after all of that. Here comes another test, and it's not just another test. It's the biggest test of all. Look at what it says. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. He's going to put him through a test because those who walk by faith are tested by God. This is God doing this. This isn't the devil doing this. This is God who comes and he tests him. And you and I, when we walk by faith, let me tell you, you just need to understand we're going to be put to the test. And when we depend on the Lord, God gives us victory. You have a victory today, and do you know what? You'll have a test tomorrow. You climb a hill today and God gives you a victory in climbing that hill today and you know what? You're going to have a mountain in front of you tomorrow. 
You cross a stream today and God gives you victory in crossing that stream today and you're going to have a river in front of you tomorrow. And the thing that we wonder is this, is why does God test us? Why do you read that right there? Why does God test Abraham when it says that God tested Abraham? Well, why does God do that? Why does he put us to the test? Well, you know, shouldn't God make life easy for us? Shouldn't God just smooth out every rough place in the road for us? Shouldn't God just straighten out every curve in the road for us? Shouldn't God just make everything in life easy for us since we've trusted in him? Why is it that God comes and God tests us? I'm going to give you three, three reasons why God does that. I'm going to give you three, three answers to that question tonight. And he does it for every one of us. Number one, God comes and he tests the exclusivity of our love. He comes to test the exclusivity of our love. Do I really love God? Do I really love God supremely? Is God supreme in my life? Is my love for God pure? Is it above love for everything and anything else? How am I going to know? How is God going to know that Abraham loves him unless God puts him to the test? Now, here's, here's the question. Do I love God or do I love all the stuff God gives me? Now, which is it that I'm in love with? Because I like my stuff. Here, here's, a little, here's a little trick. I love these things. I'm going to, I'm going to, Boy, you can mess with a dog's mind with this. I have for hours entertained myself with this thing right here. You know, all the little gadgets that you've got, all the stuff that makes life, you know, it's a little bit fun. Your flat panel television, it is nice. I watched Vagabants uh, when Debbie was gone a couple of days ago. I watched Vagabants, and I'm telling you what, that's the greenest golf course I've ever seen in my life on that, uh, on that television. You love all that stuff. Well, that's the question. Do I love God, or do I love all the stuff God gives me? Now, that's what God was wanting to know with Abraham. Abraham, do you love me, or, or do you love what I gave you? And what I gave you was Isaac. Now here, let me take that a step further. Uh, do you love God or do you love God as long as he's giving you stuff? As long as he's given me something, I'm pretty happy with God. I'm pretty pleased with God. As long as he's given me things, I, I'm really happy with him. He gives me good health. I'm happy with God. He gives me, um, you know, a, a good salary. I'm happy with God. He gives me a nice home. I'm happy with God. He gives me a comfortable car to ride in. I'm happy with God. God wants to know, do you love me or do you love the stuff or do you love me only because I give you the stuff? Watch my knee. That that Chinese Christian who puts you under such deep conviction, conviction, listen to what he says. God fills our hands with good things and our hands are filled. Then God reaches down and he says, I want to put my hand in your hand for fellowship, but our hands are full. So God has to take something out of our hands before he can put his hand in ours. And then Watchman Nee says this, Isaac can be done without but God cannot. 
I can live without my automobile. I can live without my house. I can, li- I can live without all of my kids and grandkids and my wife. I can't live without God. You see, that's what Nia is saying right there. That's what God is coming to Abraham, and that's what he's asking for. Do you love me, or do you just love the stuff that I've given to you? What's the truth about your life? Um, ask yourself that question. What is it when you stop and you really begin to think about all of this? And we all acknowledge, listen, we do love God, and we, we do acknowledge that God has given all of this stuff to us. Well, what about it? Where's our, where's our love tonight? Who do we really love? And you say, well, you know, I love God. Well, let me, let me put it to you this way. Does Christ love the church? He died for the church, didn't he? He didn't die for the government. He didn't, he didn't die for, um, you know, AARP. He died for the church. So I would say God loves the church. He gave his only begotten son for the church, for us. When the church comes and asks you, do you love Christ enough to serve? Do you serve? Do you give your talent and your ability and your gifts and your energy, and your time. See, I had not even talked about money yet. Because let me tell you, the easiest thing for an American to do is throw money at something. Amen. And the real struggle is, please, 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 ask me for anything, but don't ask me to give my energy and my time and to take my talent and to have to go and work all of that. Well, listen, let me tell you something. You get a really good, this is a really good exercise in do I love God or do I love the stuff that God gives me? Uh, The exercise is when the church comes and asks you to serve, are you ready and willing and excited to do that? Because we're doing it as unto the Lord. That's a great exercise right there in your own life to look and say, am I doing something? Am I serving God in some kind of way? Because he comes and he's going to test us as to the exclusivity of our love. Number two, here's the second thing. He's going to test the level of our trust, the level of our faith. This was a test to see, Abraham, are you going to trust me in this? I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you to do something. We're going to find out, are you going to trust me? What's the level of your trust? Or are you going to trust your own judgment and what you think is best in this situation? It was a test of faith. It was a test of obedience. Uh, God had promised him an heir. You can go all the way back to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he says, I am going to give you descendants, and through those descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he's, he's already promised him that way back there. In chapter 21, we saw it last week. I told you everything was prelude to chapter 21 because in chapter 21, God keeps his promise. God always keeps his promise. He promised a son to Abraham that a son would come from him and Sarah, from the two of them, from their marriage, from their own physiological lives, and God kept his word. Now, watch. 
Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son. And he's going to get this thing so specific that it's going to be hurtful here. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Now let's put his name in there, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, here's the whole contradiction. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got a contradiction going on here. God, you promised me this kid for 25 years. You kept your promise. You know, thank you, Lord. You kept your promise here. But now you're telling me to take this kid and put him to death as a sacrifice. That's a contradiction. Something's not right. Something's not, something's not kosher here. Good. He's going to be the father of all the Jewish race. race, so something wasn't kosher. He didn't think, you know, what's going on? Well, God comes and he says, I want you to take him. He's very specific about it. I want you to take him, your son, your only son, whom you love, the, the, the kids you love, Isaac, when he didn't have anybody else. He says, that's the one, the one that I promised you. Now, here is the thing. Would Abraham trust God when he did not understand what in the world is God doing here? This doesn't make any sense, God. When everything else is gone, will I still put my faith in the Lord? If everything else is wiped away, am I still going to put my faith in God? Well, watch verse 3. He says, you take him to Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. I'm going to show it to you. It's kind of interesting. God never tells Abraham the location. He said, I'll take you to a land. I'll show you the land. Now, he does the same thing here. I'm going to show you the mountain. It's, it's the constant walk of faith. I don't know about you. God never tells me ahead of time what he's going to do. I don't know why. Other than God forces me to walk and trust him by faith. Uh, and so that's what he's doing here with Abraham. I want you to do this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. He doesn't say anything to anybody. We don't read about a conversation between him and Sarah uh, we don't see him saying anything to any of the guys that are going with him, and a couple of servants are going with him. He took two of his young men and with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and he went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. Now, you have to think about this. Abraham walked for three days with Isaac. For three days, they traveled. For three days, what do, you, what do you suppose the conversation is on, on, on the road? I suppose this boy, and I think uh, Isaac must be around 18, 20 years of age, if, if uh, Abraham is, is around 120, uh, I, I suppose that along the way, a 120-year-old man probably stumbled a little bit. And here's this 20-year-old this young man who has to help his 120-year-old dad a little bit. Probably had to hold his arm, had to steady him. They had to sit down some along the way. I imagine that along the way they talked. I imagine that uh, Abraham reminisced. The older you get, you like to reminisce. Um, 
You like to talk about things in the Bible. He probably talked about his dad. He probably told Isaac how God had called him out of Ur, all the things that happened to him, how he met his mom, how they fell in love, all those kind of things they probably talked about. I imagine there was some coaching going on along the way. I imagine there was some mentoring. I suspect that he showed him how you can track out here in the desert. Let me show you, son, how to do this. Uh, I suspect I can remember very well going hunting the first time. My dad gave me a shotgun when I was 10 years old. And I had to sit down in the floor and put it together. And then he took me out. We went rabbit hunting, and then we went bird hunting. And when we shot bird, he showed me how to clean bird. He showed me how to shoot the gun. I imagine some of that took place along the way. I don't know if he had a brown. I don't know if Abraham had a browning or not. But um, I, I suppose that was it. This is how you hunt. You're out here in the desert. Where are you going to find food? Let me show you how you do that. How do you find water? Well, let me show you since we're on this trip. And I imagine for three days, and then you've got the nights. What did they do at night? I can, I can see Abraham lying awake at night, silently in his heart, just praying, God, are you sure this is right? Are you certain this is what you want me to do? God, listen, I'm old. I'm 120 years old. This is just a boy. He's 20 years of age. Listen, if somebody's got to die, let him sacrifice me. I'll be glad to be sacrificed by him. In fact, it'll, I'll make it as easy as possible. I'll get up there and cut my own throat. I can imagine all kind of things that he prayed. Lord, listen, don't make me do it. If the boy's got to die, surely let one of these servants go up there and do it. I don't want to watch this. I don't want to see this. I can imagine through the night for for those nights, he must have prayed. He must have pled with God down in his heart. He must have, I can just imagine him lying there groaning in his spirit. And Isaac saying, dad, are you okay? Are you all right? But he does it. He goes. Because he's living a life of faith and God tests our faith. You know what we often do in the walk of faith? We look for loopholes. A lot of times walking through this Christian life, we look for loopholes. How can I get out of can, is this legitimate? Can I justify doing it? Can I justify that? How can I get out of some of the things that God has called me to do? How can I get out of witnessing? How can I get out of church? How can I get out of Bible study? How can I get out of, of, of a prayer life that is every day? How can I get out of some of these things and kind of save face? And then you know what we do? After we look for loopholes, we'll begin to question God about things. Well, God, I'm just not real sure about this. I don't know. This just doesn't really sound right to me. And so we start questioning God. And then once we start questioning God, then we'll start debating God. We'll start telling God what we think about things. Is if our opinion is equal with God's opinion, and then we'll just start saying, well, I think I'm going to handle this this way. I think this is the best way for me to handle it. Abraham doesn't do any of that. That's the amazing thing to me. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. He goes by faith. He's going to trust by faith. In fact, verse 5 is the most outstanding verse. Good night. Abraham said to his young men, when they got there, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go there, we'll go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Do you see that? 
Just hang on to that thought, and if I don't say any more about it, ask me about it at the end. But just think of that. He, he's got this faith. He did this. He, he's trusting God by faith here in this whole situation. He says, we're going to go over there, and we will return to you. Now, that just fascinates me, that whole concept there. Can we walk with that kind of faith? You know, it's, it's not by chance that I hit this chapter tonight before this coming Sunday. Now, Sunday morning, I'm going to be a little different in, in what I do. I'm going to give you an overview of what we've been working on for the last, almost last year, almost the last entire year. When I came here, I told you up front, I did not come with a vision. I didn't, I didn't come in here and say, hey, I've got a vision of what this church, we've got to build an auditorium out that way, and we've got to build a family life center out this way, and we've got to build educational space out this way, and it's going to cost us $25 million, so all of you just get up off of it and start giving. I, I didn't come here. I didn't do that. I'm not doing that Sunday. I'm not going to talk to you about budget Sunday. I'm not going to talk to you about capital campaigns. I'm not going to talk to you about buildings. I am going to talk to you about spiritual direction and spiritual depth. Spiritual direction, spiritual depth. Because if you don't have some spiritual direction and you don't have some spiritual depth and you got a campaign, you know what you got? You got a campaign. I am far more interested in where this church is headed spiritually than where we are headed financially. Or as buildings go. Or any of the other stuff. I've got a short window of time to get you to where I believe God wants me to get you. And I am far more interested in your spiritual life than I am your financial life. So, are we going to walk by faith? Are we going to trust God by faith? Abraham took Isaac, and he went up that mountain. He did not know. He did not understand. It could not make sense to him. If I stop right here, it doesn't make any sense to me. I know the end of the story, and I'm living way on this side of it, but I'm telling you something. I cannot imagine what he must have been going through. And so God comes and he tests the level of our faith. And you see the level of Abraham's faith in verse 5. You think, well, well wait a minute. What, what about down here where he goes to kill the boy? No, you really see the level of his faith in verse 5. But now we'll do this. Let me give you the third thing. And the third thing is this. God tests our willingness to sacrifice. Are we willing to sacrifice? Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Now, this verse right here, folks, if you can't see that this is pointing to something greater, let me try to help you with it. He took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Now, think of this. Here is Abraham the father and Isaac the son. Isaac has the wood on his back, and he is going up Mount Moriah. Now, I've got a picture. There's a picture right there. Good. And uh, then let me, give me the picture of uh, Jerusalem, the, the aerial view of Jerusalem. Yeah, that's good right there. 
That's great right there. And then there's another, should be an aerial view. But let me, let me just show you something here. This is the temple mount right here. This is what you're looking at. That's where, that's where Solomon's temple was built. That's where the Dome of the Rock is. When I show you the aerial view in a moment, you're going to see that gold dome right there. This is Kidron here. You come around. This is the Hinnom Valley comes around this way. Um, uh, this is the Central Valley that comes in there. But here, here, I'm going to take you. You're going to go out this way, and you're going to come. Look, this is Gordon's Calvary over here. And right next to Gordon's Calvary is the garden tomb. But now let me, let, me sh- let me give you an aerial view of this, and I want to show you something here that's interesting. This is Mount Moriah. Uh, down this way, do you see where I'm pointing down this way? See this down here? You, don't see, you can't see this, but this is a mountain here. That's Mount Zion. That, that was David's city was down here. They have uncovered what they believe to be David's palace. Um, so that's down here. It's, Abraham comes on up here under this dome. You remember Solomon's temple sat right here. Under this dome is a massive rock. Um, and that rock right there is where the priest would slay. All of those animals would be slain there. There is a, uh, a drainage system under that rock. You can see, if you could see the rock, I've been in there. It's been 100 years ago. Um, since I've been in there, because the Muslims won't let you in there now. But I've been in there, and that rock has a big hole in it, and there's a drainage system that drains out and out out and out under and comes down here into the Kidron Valley. In this Kidron Valley, there used to be a stream, and all that blood would flow out from there down into the stream, and the stream would take it on out. So that's where the sacrifice, that's where we believe, that's where the Jews believe Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed right there. Well, when you come on out of the city, right back out over in here, that's Golgotha back over in here. That's Calvary's Hill. This rock formation runs from right here all the way through and comes out right there. That's one massive rock formation that on this place here, Isaac was going to be sacrificed there on Mount Moriah, right under that gold dome, that outcropping of rock. He was going to be sacrificed. You follow that rock structure all the way underground, and it comes out. And in fact, you can't tell it here, but this over here is the higher part of Mount Moriah. This is the lower part. So where all of that comes out at Galgatha, Calvary, we call it, Gordon's Calvary, we call it Calvary because of, because of Gordon. Gordon's Calvary over there, that, that is the higher part, and that's part of the same rock formation that comes out over there. So over here, you've got Isaac. And Isaac is going to ask the question now, if you're, if you're there in the text, you've got the son on whom is laid the wood of sacrifice. Does this sound like anyone? Going up onto this mountain here. That's a bigger picture of something that's going to come in the New Testament. You see? You've got a father who is going willingly to sacrifice a son. Now watch, 
the son is going to willingly let the father sacrifice him. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. Now, this is the question right here. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Now, if Abraham was ever going to turn around and go back and say, I can't do it, it's right there. It's right there. When the boy looks at him and says, look, I, I, I know all about this. I've watched you do this plenty of times. We've got the wood, we've got the fire, but now where's the lamb? I, you, I can imagine down through history, I can hear Moses on that first Passover night when Israel had been told to take a lamb, a yearling, a year old, sacrifice that lamb, roast that lamb, take its blood, paint it over the doorway, over the door lintel, down the doorpost. But yet that night, they heard the cries of the Egyptians as they lost their firstborn. I can imagine that even in Moses' heart, he would have cried out, oh God, where is the lamb? So that nobody has to die. I imagine David did the same thing after that great sin with Bathsheba that led to the, to the next sin, which was the murder of Uriah. And then the year that he lived lying to the nation. And when he comes out of it, he tells us in Psalm, is it Psalm 22 or 32? He comes out of it and he says, man, my insides are just dried up. I'm dying. Psalm 22. I'm just dying on the inside. I've been away from God. I've been living in sin. I'm dying, and you almost just hear him cry, where's that lamb? Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, comes, and he looks at the people. They've come out of this Babylonian captivity. God's rebuilt the city for them under Nehemiah, and yet now they have turned, and they're far more interested in their own business than in God's worship and he says, you're bringing lambs to sacrifice that are blind and they're lame, they're crippled and they're diseased. I can imagine he cries out and he says, did you not learn anything in Babylonian captivity? Did you not learn anything in the 70 years you were in captivity? And he cries out, where is the lamb? It's the cry that has been coming since the third chapter, really, of Genesis, and here is Isaac, and he cries out, but where is the lamb? And then Abraham gives this great name of God in verse 8, Jehovah-Jireh, God will provide for himself the sacrifice. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them walked on. He keeps walking now. Are you willing to sacrifice? And they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac. Now, I, I, I want to just say this, and this is just my own personal. I don't like Isaac. You, I just don't care for Isaac. I like Jacob. Um, I, like, I love Abraham. I love Jacob. I, Isaac just, he just misses it to me. He's just a disappointment. He's just a colossal disappointment, but I want to tell you something. He never rises higher than he does right here. Right here in this place. He never gets any bigger spiritually than he does right here. He's got a 120-year-old daddy. He's a 20-year-old buck. He could have resisted. He could have said, no, uh, this is not going to happen. Daddy, something's wrong with you. Maybe, maybe you, you're getting a little senile. Maybe you've had a little light stroke or something. We won't talk about this anymore, but you're not doing this. 
And yet nowhere here does he resist what the father does. He turns the boy around. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar. Now I, I can tell you a 20 year old, 120 year old man is no, I don't care how good a shape he's in. He is no match for a 20 year old young man. He's no match for a 61 year old man, you know, at 120, you see. But here is, the, here is the greatness of Isaac here. He does not resist. Here is a father willing to sacrifice the son, and here is a son who is willing to be sacrificed because this is the will of the father. Wow. Wow. And so Abraham stretched out, verse 10, his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord. Now, you remember who we've talked about from time to time. Who is the angel of the Lord? We think he's the pre-incarnate Christ. I think he's the pre-incarnate Christ. Here's the pre-incarnate Christ watching what's going to happen to him on the other end of that rock. And he calls out to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, now this is the great part of the story. He said, here I am. You notice that's what he said back over here when God called him in verse 1. God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Here, the angel of the Lord calls him, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, I want you just to stop and think, we are good at talking to God. What we're not good at is listening to God. And yet Abraham's life was one to where he was a man of prayer. He prayed, but it's obvious he was a man who just didn't talk to God. He was a man who would get in a place that was quiet and he would be still and he would listen for God to talk to him. He would wait for God to speak to him. He knows immediately whose voice this is. He, he knows with certainty this is God. And so right here, thank the Lord, this is a guy who knows how to listen to God because had he not, ooh, what would have happened? Had I not all those years in the morning get up 30, 15 minutes early and just spend a few moments in prayer and just a few moments listening to God for God to speak to my heart. He does it, and because he knows the voice of God, the boy is saved. Don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. Since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me, and Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a brand offering. Now listen, after this, there's going to come a son who's going to go up on the other side of Moriah, and he is going to carry the wood of sacrifice, and the father's not going to stop it. The father's not going to stop it. There's not going to be another sacrifice. There's not going to be a substitute because this son is going to substitute for all of us. Now, here is the thing that I kept pointing back to in verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. You see that? 
as confusing as this must have been to Abraham and as contradictory as this must have been for Abraham, Abraham still trusted in the promise of God. And I honestly think before the Lord that Abraham believed if God wants me to do this and I go through offering this boy up somehow because this is the son of promise. We've been going through this, you know, it's not going to be Eliezer. It's not going to be Ishmael that's come through Hagar. It's this is the boy right here. That somehow, if I go through with this and I slay this boy and this boy is sacrificed, somehow I don't understand it, God is going to raise this child back up because it is through him God has said the promise is going to be that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now that's why we call Abraham father of all the faithful. Is because of that. Now listen, he's not the only guy that's ever been up on a mountain tested by God. Are you there? You may be going through that right now. That might be where you are. You might be up on top of a mountain right now, and God is saying, do you love me supremely? Do you have an exclusive love just for me? He, he may be looking at you, and he may be saying, hey, will you walk by faith? When you don't understand what I'm doing, and I'm calling you to walk and to do something, and it doesn't make logical sense to you, are you going to walk by faith, or are you going to trust on your human logic? Or... You might be up on that mountain and God may be saying, you've got to sacrifice something. There is something I want you to sacrifice. I want you to sacrifice your pride. I want you to sacrifice some of your time. I want you to sacrifice some of your inner. I don't know what it is for you. I have no clue. But he's got you there and you say, that's where I am. I'm up on that mountain. Now listen, why does God do this? You say, doesn't God know? Did God know what Abraham would do in verse 1 when he called Abraham to go and do this? Yeah, good. So y'all are not open theist? You know what open theology is? Open theology says that even God doesn't know exactly everything that's going to happen. That's what open theology says. Do you know what I say to that? Did God know it? Yes. Then why does God do it? Because Abraham didn't know it. When Abraham came down off that mountain, Abraham knew, dead sure, certain, I belong to God. And God belongs to me. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.